Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anand Upadhyay, and thanks for joining us. Today's episode is with Warun Mehta, the CEO of Factor, a legal managed services company recently spun out of Axiom, the massive alternative legal services provider. Warun's story is fascinating. He approaches the legal industry from the perspective of an engineer, out to solve problems in a cross-disciplinary way, totally free from the traditional and frequently ineffective old ways of performing legal services for clients. Warun starts by telling the story of a formative experience early in his career, when he was able to assemble a team of subject matter experts and data scientists and beat a global 100 law firm in a race to find highly relevant documents relating to a key financial investigation. If his team could outcompete teams of expensive attorneys at finding needles in data haystacks, how else could a cross-functional team raise the bar for legal service? Warun also talks about discovering his personal strengths, inspiration through Stoic philosophy, his idea of professional compound interest, and how he finally made it to the helm of one of the most interesting companies in the legal industry. Keep an eye on companies like Factor. As the legal industry approaches client service in new and creative ways over the next decade, Factor is likely to carve out a niche as a key player in this space, in an effort to, as Warun says, bring the human back to legal. As always, if you like our discussion, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Varun, thank you so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It is an honor and a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. So look, Varun, uh, Factor has been in the news a lot lately. It's had a big launch. It's doing a lot of big things. It's a lot of articles, a lot of podcasts, a lot have been written about it. I want to cover Factor, of course, uh, extensively. But I want to start off with just getting your backstory because I find it fascinating. And I think your path to Factor... Um, you know, in in retrospect, seems very clear. But I think in your mind, it was a lot more kind of serpentine, right? And a lot more complex than just this straight line to CEO of this very successful, uh, impressive spinoff. So where'd you get your start, Varun? Absolutely. No, uh, pleasure and happy to do it. Yeah, look, so I'm not a lawyer by training. So it's strange to be on a modern lawyer podcast, but I'm an engineer by training biomedical engineer so clearly a natural fit to legal transformation i'm sure that was their that was their rubric for hiring right biomedical yeah, absolutely yeah biomedical engineering especially the time when i was doing neural epithelial stem cell research you know oh, that was yeah. definitely the that was definitely like uh, there's a lot of overlap there no look so i was an engineer by by training but i'd say as a ever since i was a a, a young lad i always was intrigued by entrepreneurship building businesses, you know, building things, forget the business, this idea of taking something, building it, growing it and leaving it to continue to flourish without an individual. So I've always been, you know, intrigued by that and started a number of businesses As as a young guy in high school, I was building websites for churches as you uh, as you've learned, I, I, I did some DJing for the South Asian community in the Rochester, the Rochester area, video editing, and pretty much at the time it was not about making money, but it was anything I could do to to make a couple bucks to buy some cool gadgets and and uh, technology. 
Um, you just loved house music. I understand. Yeah. 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 No, it was more Bhangra music. Of course. Right. Ah, got it. Of course. Of yeah, course. Come on, Adam. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Or Bollywood. It. Some Bollywood. Yeah. Um, but no, it was, I, I'd say, look, I, I graduated, went to work at a large medical device, pharmaceutical company. You know, I realized whether it was me being arrogant or just being insightful, you know, I think there's a borderline on those two feelings. I I, I didn't want to work at a big company. Big big companies are not my jam. I think I get lost in them. And so, you know, a few people I knew were starting a variety of businesses and I landed on legal outsourcing. It was right at the start of the LPO craze, 2008, also at the height of kind of the financial epidemic. So cost cutting and all that stuff made sense. Yeah, the, the um, documentary, I think Law Tiger uh, was popular then, right? Like the whole idea of, that's of right. offshoring, outsourcing. Yeah. Offshoring, yeah, that's right. And so I joined a group of people that, you know, once again, you know, had uh, a lot of great credentials that knew what they were doing. Um, I joined a business that was just out at the beginning of, of its journey called Clutch Group, founded by a, a guy named Jerry Rao, who was a legendary BPO founder, entrepreneur, and builder. And he said, hey, why don't we do the same thing with LPO, with legal services, 80,000 graduates a year, common English law standard. I said, hey, you know, this guy's a billionaire. He's, he seems to know what he's saying. Let's jump in. Yeah. And so I joined, moved down to DC. Um, and what we had done was one of the first things we did as we started the business was we had bought a legal staffing business out of DC called Clutch Legal Staffing. And so that's how the business was kind of formed. We had the offshore arm that we had built and then the, the legal staffing arm that a guy named Paul Mandel had built, who uh, now runs the Concero Group, which is a great networking and community building event business for the legal community as well. So long story short, you know, we quickly realized, I quickly realized, or not quickly, over a couple of years realized that very few lawyers in general, that anyone is in a decision-making position to buy legal services doesn't think about it as, I need 50 people. I need 100 people. It wasn't anything like BPO or IT outsourcing. There was very little process. Even today, now we're, what, 13 years since then. Most tasks don't have structured process. Most tasks don't have clear delineation between ownership and accountability. It's still very fluid. And this is 13 years ago. So, you know, we we started on that journey and realized, hey, we don't, we can't just talk about outsourcing and offshoring. That's not really that interesting. Or that's not what the market really needs. A few people did it very successfully. Our friends at Pangea obviously did it very successfully. But we kind of re- we pivoted and we really focused on saying, hey, we're going to focus on outcomes and we're going to focus on results versus people and individuals. And so what we did is we said, I remember at the time when we were going through any of these e-discovery document review processes, we were providing kind of the review labor then the law firm would provide some PMO. Then there was an e-discovery company that had their list of 20 billable items. Then you know there might be a forensic accounting business. There might be an expert. And all of that would go into to a general counsel. And I remember a GC calling me one day being like, hey, this is a personal favor. It's not, a, it's not nothing more. And if you don't have to do it, I'm getting all these bills on this issue. And I don't even know what they mean. Can you explain to me what these bills mean? You know, And that's the and general counsel. Yeah, that's a general counsel. And it was a general counsel of a very large company. And it was mainly the e-discovery and review side of things. He wasn't even a client. This is just like my relationship building. 
And I thought that was funny considering when I read a legal bill, I usually have no clue what it means. So that, that's know, on purpose. Speaking on behalf of lawyers, that's on purpose. <laughs> that's my that. design, right? Only half joking. Yeah. That's the course that you guys take that no one knows. It's not on the syllabus. That's right. right. It's yeah. the secret three-hour yeah. course, right? It's the secret three-hour course. So, so long story short, you know, what we did is we said, hey, look, we can't be all things to all people. We're small. We're a scrappy startup. Financial services were under a lot of pressure because of the regulatory impacts. It came out of 2008-2009 financial crisis. And I think general counsels were having to play a role, a little bit of general contractor of... You know, we need all these different pieces of puzzle. There's an e-discovery vendor. There's a hosting vendor. There's a, you know, this, that, and the other. And bundling that together and then understanding how it costs and where there's value. But all they really needed to do was, was to get like a fact pattern to drive their case, to drive the investigation. Right. So we just said, let's bundle all that together. You know, um, we're never going to be better than an AMWA 100 firm at the legal side of it. But what we can do is get really good at project management and get really good at data and reporting, get re- really good at using technology, harnessing technology to really drive. And then the last part of the secret sauce is if we focus on an industry, we could get to know the inner workings of that industry, not the legal side of it, but the business side of it better than a law firm potentially. So so let me step in here. I mean, you've said a couple really big, big things here, right? One of the things that you said, which which seems almost obvious, I think, in retrospect, but I think, you know, 10, 12 years ago was kind of a big deal. You said, um, you know, two kind of modes of operation, right? One, which was very common in the, you know, LPO scene, right? Which is, you have a problem, we'll give you 50 people versus you have a problem and we will do whatever we need to do technologically with respect to process, with this, with respect to experts to solve the problem and we will come back to you with the solved problem, right? That strikes me as like a major shift, right? Earlier in this discussion, I said law tiger. I meant office tiger, the documentary. Office tiger, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tiger, yeah. Right, right. In my world, everything revolves around law, right? So I just, law, that's true. Yeah, that's but true. you know, office tiger is trying to do that, right? Hey, we'll give yep. you... 12 people in in India they're going to uh, handle this versus we'll get this auditing done for you right is yep. that kind of the major shift for you am i am i being overly simplistic like no i think i think that's right i think you know it's understanding where what is if we take a step back what are we trying to accomplish yeah. right nobody's like excited about oh like collecting data processing it using nuix um, creating different dedupe engines. Yeah. Like that's not, I mean, it's funny because we sold a lot of technology as part of our solution. I couldn't give a demo myself if my life depended on it. I had no clue on like, I wasn't the guy that demoed the tool and we never demoed to a technology when we were at Clutch. Because for us, that's the same way we felt about our people. It's not about like names and resumes, right? Which is what the legal industry is so accustomed to, yeah. right? Yeah. But it's about, we're going to put the right team together. Some of them might be offshore. Some of them might be onshore. Some of them might, we might use technology for some of it. We might need to actually ask the law firm to do some of it because we may not have a certain expertise or skill set. But we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to deliver it fit for purpose. And we're going to measure against an SLA, right? And that's what's important. And we're going to do all that. And I think the big revelation from there was, 
just to make it easy, which is, this is the part that got the GCs, I think, really excited is we do it all for a dollar a document, $1 per document, no other fees, no hidden charges, none of that. And we were one of the early ones, to do, a number of people were doing it at the time, one of the early ones to do it. But, you know, it was a big shift, like convincing a general counsel that, hey, no, you shouldn't use your Sullivan and Cromwell associate to review this data. Um, but you should just trust Clutch and we're going to develop memos at the end of our review and fact development and present those memos to, to not the first and second year associate, but the fifth and sixth year associate that they can work on whatever they need to do. So, so at this point in your career, you go over to Clutch, you're very steeped in this kind of LPO world. You're understanding a lot of the economics. One of the things that you told me, which I just thought was a, an exciting story, almost like a story that they should make a movie out of or something, you know, is a story about this bake-off, right? Between Clutch and this, you know, we'll call it top, top global firm. And first of all, describe that, describe how that played out. I'm, I'm obviously being more dramatic about it, right? But how it played out, what the results were and what that set of results taught you about the state of law at the time. Absolutely. So, you know, we, we had focused at this point on banking and we had brought on a number of former traders. We had brought on former folks that ran operations in banks and former regulators of banks. And a bank had called us that we were already working with. A bank had called us to say, hey, we have a new potential regulatory inquiry. We want to submit something very quickly that shows evidence because our goal is to gain immunity from the regulators, to be kind of the, for lack of a better term, the cooperating witness here. Right. Sure. sure yeah. Um, and and the first company in to the regulators with the right amount of evidence and an understanding of what's happening usually was awarded that, which was a big deal. You know what that meant was, of course, the typical. We got to think about what data to collect. We got to process it. Got to host it. All that. But then the question from the bank was, Hey, like, how do we find the most? In any case, you know, when we think about in any litigation investigation matter, the exercise is finding evidence that's responsive to either a request or relevant to a particular issue, right? That, that could be like 80% of law. That could be 80% of law. That's right. Yeah. The challenge though is, is like, that's not the most important thing to do. In any discovery exercise, at least in the beginning, it's finding out what the heck's going on. Yeah. What, right. are, what are the core issues who are the key characters and what's happened? So we had a plan that we proposed to the bank. The firm had a plan that they proposed to the bank. And using the same database, because it was our database, like we had to assemble the database, the bank said, both of you guys go and send, show me what you find. You know, we had, we had about five days before we met the senior leadership on the issue. And then our results were then going to be presented to the board. And this is where the movie would start, right? Like, yeah, that's right. You are given right. this kind of assignment, <laughs> and you run off, and you know, you all are in jeans and t-shirts, and and you know, tech tech guys, and the other guys are in you know, Savile Row, eight thousand dollars suits, right? Yeah. No, I mean, like, so so where where we got to was, I think the law firm did what they would do. They put twenty five associates. They put some date filters. They did some search terms. I'm not saying it was nothing. Right. But it was kind of like a looking for the golden ticket in Willy Wonka, right? That's what it was. Right. And, you know, there were certain rich families in Willy Wonka that were able to find it because 
They just had the whole factory looking for it. But we had a different tact. We actually had a team of only four or five. One was kind of steep in data science. One was steep in like tech analytics. And we used kind of at the time, I think we were using brain space and, and then relativity. So nothing even like, let's not, we're not using any spaceship stuff here. They're great tools. I'm not being negative on them, but like, and then we had a, someone that sat and did trading on this desk before. And then two kind of senior analysts, reviewers kind of people. And we went at it and we were able to find more interesting. It's easy to find relevant and responsive. Let's assume that that's like, like you said, that's 80%. But we need to find the 1%, if not the 0.1%, that's going to determine what's happened and how it's happened and why it's happened. And we were able to do that using the technology, finding the right times, finding, pinpointing. Once we would, we'd have like five or six threads running. And once we find and pull a thread, then we double or triple down on that one, but we're still running the other three to make sure we're not losing anything. So on one side, right, on one side of the bake-off, you have these 25 associates who are all kind of, you know, very smart, I'm sure, very well-credentialed, very good writers, but all kind of similar backgrounds, right? Probably not deep experts because they're associates, right? They're just, they're new to law. And then on your side of the table, you know, casual attire be damned, have analysts, subject matter experts, technologists, data scientists using a lot of tools that are commonly available on the market, but likely the best tools. Yeah. And it's, it's not about using the tools. I mean, just because you have a Ferrari doesn't mean you know how to drive it, right. right? So we're anchoring towards performance here. Performance is the word, right? And I think that's the word that's often missing in legal, which is it's not, you know, we over anchor on risk. Well, what if we miss that one document? Right. But I said, if you don't even focus on performance, what if you don't even understand what that document means? You know, like that's kind of what we're trying to get to. We presented our results. There was a pack that this bank had submitted to the regulators of 150 key documents, about 85% of them we had found. Right. So this is not a negative on the firm because the package that you have to submit to the regulator. There's no way we had any clue on how to submit that package or prepare that package, prepare the brief, look at what you're asking for, have every word be the right word because you don't want to be pushy and piss the regulator off, but you also want to put some umph against it. That is why you know, these partners at these great firms are worth way more than $1,500 an hour in my mind. Way more, way more. But you know what we're focused on is a different task. It's not a legal task. It's a task as part of a legal process. And that requires different core competencies, different skills, different expertise. And that is what I think, you know, what you're trying to uncover, but that's modern law, right? That's the next yeah. generation. A task as a part of the legal process, right? That that's I think I think you just summed it up right there. Yeah. So that must have I mean, you're a pretty confident guy. Clutch Group was doing a lot of good work, but did you think that that would be the result? Did you think you were just going to get blown away by this global firm? Or were you pretty comfortable that you had the right team? Well, to, to me, to me, the baseline was, I like the dramatic effect that we're creating here, but either way, they're using the database <laughs> that we're on. So, right, you know, right. we created, but there is an arrogance that, that certain firms and certain partners bring to a process, which is there's no way you would ever understand how to do what I can do. And, and what we need to decouple is, 
I'm like, part of that, you're probably right. You're 100% right. And part of that, you're probably wrong, you know? So I, no, I think, I don't, it's not about confidence. It's just about understanding the problem. And I think what, what I've kind of come to terms with my entire life's learning from being an engineer, and it took me a while to figure this out, is explain the problem. Let's break it into its component parts. Figure out where there's parts of friction or challenge. Address those and let's move on to the next one. And that's it. Like the big joke internally is whenever someone says, hey, we have this issue, I say, okay, there's usually three, five, or seven. There are five things that we need to not think about. And they're always like, okay, here comes Varun's three, five, or seven. Yep. But that is, you know, it's always in my mind, it's just, I just look at something and I say, we're going to break it down into component pieces. And let's figure out how we address each component piece because no one just goes and makes a bridge. There's not one person that makes a bridge. There are multiple people with different skill sets that are brought into their lane that assemble a bridge. And you have a general contractor that brings it together. That's where I think one of our big, my big revelations in law, and I think what we're trying to do here, Factor, I know we'll get into that. But I think that there is a role for a general contractor in this industry. And you know, that's one of the things that we saw, at least in eDiscovery. And we try to do that to the extent we could. And I think that's, you know, that's really a, becoming a big part of our thesis and premise here. And so, you know, maybe things are changing now. I think law firms are getting very sophisticated. I think they're making a lot of very encouraging and correct moves business-wise. But call it 10 years ago or so, do you think that law firms just assume you, you refer to this like arrogance about process? Are you of the mind that law firms just assume that pretty much all parts of the legal process, irrespective of whether it was data culling or uh, picking documents or ultimately maybe their core competency of packaging all that up and submitting it to the regulators, didn't really matter whether it was stage one, two, eight, 15, 22, didn't matter. They were the top dogs. Do you think that was their view back then? And do you think that's changing now? I don't I, I don't know about that. You know, I think it's probably more of a factor of you don't know what you don't know, right? You know, about 10 years ago, we're in the same vein. You and I both thought that the only way to really get from point A to point B, if we, you know, was to just hail a cab, go outside, right. put my arm out, hail a cab. And we didn't like hailing cabs. It wasn't like a great experience. But we also didn't know what would be better. Like we had no remnants of what that is. And then, you know, hence comes Uber. And now like the idea of hailing a cab is insane. You know, I I mean, New York's probably one of the few cities where you still do that, but it's becoming the far and few in between. So I think it's a factor of you don't know what you don't know. That's A. I think B, a big part of why you hire a firm, pay the rates you pay, is risk management. And anything that a firm doesn't control is inherently viewed as a risk, right? I think that's changing today. I think that's that's changing, but slowly, a lot, a lot slower than our, our friends in the media like that report. Yeah. But it I understand that. And it takes time. Like, look, 10 years ago, I remember the idea of having someone that wasn't a law firm associate reviewing documents was absurd. I can't imagine my guess is. And then there was a whole thing like, how would law firm associates ever function? How will they grow? And, you know, I mean, now we have billion dollar e-discovery and review companies. Like, and there's there's numbers of them. And I can't imagine that there's a single Fortune 500 company that doesn't use those 
those providers and that law firms don't use those providers themselves. And we're all here. We're all fine. And the firms are actually, from what I heard, they're making more money every year still. You know, they're still paying lawyers way more than anyone should be paid for a first year associate. So <laughs> I think it's okay. Yeah. 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 They've done just fine. Turns out lawyers have done just fine. So take me from Clutch Group to where you are now. Yeah. So we, we exited Clutch Group to a firm called Moray. As these things happen, I left after about six months into that journey, maybe nine months or so. And I said, hey, like, I actually, you know, to be frank, I said, why in God's name did I pick legal? <laughs> like, how did I end up 10, 10 years into this industry? And uh, so I kind of, honestly, so I took a sabbatical. I highly recommend everyone try to find a moment in their life where they can, um, in between work, and it can be as long as you want or as little as you want, but it's taking some time where you, you just can think for yourself. Because it, the easiest thing for me to do would be go from there to just become an executive at another legal services company, or especially, probably more importantly, probably would have just stuck in e-discovery. That would have been like e-discovery and review. You know, it was very tempting because I'd have offers that were very compelling to say, hey, you have this business, you know these clients, so it's a hot market. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. So I, I truly took a year off where I actually did nothing, like did nothing at all. I, I eat, pray, loved it. It was awesome. Amazing. Um, Amazing yeah. that you had the opportunity to do that. But what you, I mean, yeah. what did you learn in that year? I learned a lot. One thing was I was able to finally say, here's what I'm good at. And here's definitely what I'm not good at. Okay. Before I think I was an arrogant, you know, person, I, was, I thought I was good at everything. I also, I think, learned without going too much, I kind of left my last role before I took my sabbatical, pretty unhappy with how things worked out. As exciting as it was in some of these, you know, the movie that you're you're talking about, but I kind of left unhappy. And the reason why was I just, I kind of felt like it's hard to change things when you actually aren't in control. And I was trying to do that and it wasn't the case. I'm coming to terms with the fact that, hey, you know, at some point, if things aren't going the way you want them to, or you don't think that they're the right thing to do, whether it's morally, ethically, strategically, business, whatever, all you can do is provide, you know, your views and your feedback. You can give people a moment of time to reflect and change. And if they don't, at that point, you staying is your fault, not theirs. <laughs> and it's funny because I was just talking to another general counsel a few minutes ago who walked me through it when he left and he said, Hey, look, I told the gen- the CEO, I, I can't mention anymore, but he, I told the CEO, I need these two things in the next year. I need to become a trusted partner. I need to, you know, have this, these two things done. And a year and six days later, I gave him my notes <laughs> and, and I, and I became GC of another big firm. And so that is hard because I think I, you know, growing up was always like the one that I'll just fix it. all. I can fix it. I can fix this. I can fix that. But if it's on your control, you can't. So I think to me, it was learning what's in my control, what's not in, it was, it was like not to get super philosophical, but it was just very like deep learning there, getting into meditations by Marcus Aurelius and reading those problems that he was talking about. And I'm like, shit, man, like he was the emperor of the world. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to run it and I'm trying to run a part of a legal process as part of a larger legal issue. Like, this is that's part of a larger legal, a large, larger business in the world. Right. Like, it's irrelevant. Who cares? Like, it's fine. 
So I think that was one. I think then I kind of anchored on, I, I looked around, I like studied a lot of markets and industries and, you know, listened and read and met lots of interesting people. And um, I think my revelation was that, you know, my greatest value is trying to bring the right people together at the table, at any table, whatever that table is. And then and that was one. And then number two is even though I quote unquote tried to escape legal, you know, there's a, there's a notion that I've been very excited about is this notion of compound interest, right? Which is everyone talks about in terms of financial terms, but there's actually a lot in terms of our own terms where I would meet founders that were starting legal businesses. Just, you know, people would connect me, introduce me. And I'd realize that for whatever reason, you know, I'd talk to them for an hour and they'd say that that was the most valuable hour they had. And it's not because I'm really that brilliant or anything. It's mainly just because I've struggled through it for 10 years and that's my compounded interest. Yes, I could introduce them to the editor of a legal publication or the guy that runs a great podcast, the Modern Lawyer podcast. (laughs) And that will be taken way more seriously than if that person just reached out to you directly. So there is that compounded interest. And I think I, I actually realized that like, you know, there, there's a big thesis around imposter syndrome. I was like, I don't know anything about law. I don't know anything about law. And I realized like the more I talk and learn, and I'd be like, I guess I know a few things. Like I've, I've learned something in my decade. Yeah. You know, I think lawyers also are very good at making, and I use this term in a like uncomfortable way, but making quote non lawyers feel like they know nothing about law. Like law is so ivory tower, so complicated, so like you know whatever complex that a mere biomedical engineer working on you know epithelial cells <laughs> cannot ever understand how whatever works. Right? Like I, I think yeah. that's part of the machine, right? And so. I think you felt that way maybe by um, by design, by no one's fault and by no one's yep. intention, but by design. Yep. Look, it, it was an eye-opening experience. I went into other markets and industries and I have a very simple task when I don't know about something, but I want to learn. I'm happy to be the note taker. And that's kind of how I believe, you know, knock on wood, I've had whatever success I've had thus far is I'm happy to sit in the room and be the guy that takes notes. So it was funny. It was back to square one. I was going to like interesting conferences in different markets and world, whether it be real estate. I evaluated the cannabis market. I evaluated. I evaluated like the food and beverage space. Uh, I went to the food and beverage show. It's called Expo in LA. Way cooler. <laughs> than any legal event you'll ever go to ever. Like, right. Those, no, those like, three samples just hit differently, don't they? Of like the coolest... There's something called banana milk. They sell this now. I don't know. Do you know that they sell banana milk? So I have no idea. It's, so, yeah. So it's it's called... It's actually called Moolala, just so you know. But it's... This I episode is sponsored I, by Moolala. Moolala. <laughs> but no, I, I, I will say, I, I just came away being like, look, that stuff's all cool. So I was doing that halftime. The other halftime, I was, you know, in my second year. So I had year one sabbatical. Year two was like semi-sabbatical, semi-working on my own. And I was working on a couple of deals where we would, we were one time, we we're trying to build a food and beverage factory. And that was one thing. And then uh, all this stuff. Before we move on, I know you talked about Marcus yeah. Aurelius. Like, 
I take it you were like, you know, reading a lot of Stoics back then, right? I mean, I, I, you know, I was a philosophy major in, in college and I, I love the, the Stoics and, you know, you've got Epictetus and, and Zeno of City yeah. and Seneca, yeah. Seneca, all the, all these folks. And I don't want to turn this into like Joe Rogan or something or, you know, Tim, the Tim Ferriss show, but can you talk about a few kernels that you pulled out of that? I mean, uh, you talked about how, you know, in meditations, you have Marcus Aurelius, like the, maybe at the time, the most powerful person on the planet. And he's talking about very kind of common things. You have the Epictetus talking about like friendship and, and right, like they're talking about like the core building blocks of human beings and consciousness. And now we've, we're very much into Joe Rogan territory. But I mean, what, yeah. what did you pull from that in this sabbatical as you were reading these, these folks and generally, and as a life philosophy, what from their writings and teachings did you pull in to guide you? You know, I think I'll talk about my transformation as a person. And I know this is getting into w- weird territory, but I'm okay. I'm done with it. So we can go down this path. I was a highly emotion-driven person. Anand, fuck you. Why'd you do that to me? Right. Right? I can't believe this. Uh, this is terrible. And that's not uncommon. I mean, like lots of people do that. And I think I just came, and you can, you know, if you want to, you can reach out to my leadership team. It's not 100% gone, but it's like 98% gone because, A, if you're underperforming or you're not performing to my standards, I probably haven't set the right standards or I haven't given you the right job. So I take accountability for everything. It's always my fault. People think I'm a Satanist, but it's like, it is not my, always my fault, but it's my responsibility to get it right. And that's, I always own that responsibility. I think the other part is just understanding that you may screw something up for a client. We need to learn from that. But let's learn from that, get stronger, build that fiber, right. and move to the next thing. Let's not harp over it for the rest of our lives. And that's the same thing I tell our clients sometimes, which is not easy to do. I'm sorry we screwed this up. And here's why we screwed this up. Because we do. It happens. We're in a business. like Everyone thinks that law firms deliver perfect work. You just don't know what's going on behind the factory. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. We're just giving you, like, we're like the kitchen that has the window up. You can see how we cook. So you know we're, we're washing our hands and doing all that stuff. But, you know, I think for us, for me, it's saying, hey, this is what we did. This is why it was wrong. Here's how we're going to make sure it never happens again. But also, like, I need to know, like, are you, or can we move on? Or, like, is the next time something happens, I mean, well, you also did this one thing wrong this one time. So I think it's moving more to the present because whatever happened yesterday is gone. Whatever is going to happen tomorrow hasn't happened yet. So all you have is today and that's it. And that's, you know, a little, I know we're getting, I mean, I, I did the whole Tony Robbins thing and, you know, it was like, so, so I'm there. I love that stuff because I think it centers you and helps you drive to a greater purpose. And the purpose here isn't about transforming a legal department, but to me, even at Factor, it's how do we give people, how many lawyers are happy in the work they do? My guess is very few. I don't know. There must be a study out there somewhere. But let's give them a better way to work, a better place to work, a happier place to work. And that's something, you know, Mark Harris started with Axiom, which right. I always admired. Let's keep that going and do that in a way where we deliver a better outcome. Not, it's not about, did you negotiate the best clause for that transactional agreement? But it's about delivering an overall outcome. Did we help the business sell 
more because we delivered more contracting on time. Right. You know? Right. And did we do that in a way that didn't burn our people out? And I'm not saying we're there yet. You know, I think we still have a long ways to go. But bringing the human back to work, and especially back to legal, which is, you know, I think so much of legal is dehumanized, especially with the language that's used. You read a contract, you're like, what the hell is this person trying to say? Like the terms and conditions that we click wrap even to launch into Zoom today, like, yeah. what does this mean? You right. know? So we're dehumanizing that. Let's bring the human back. I love that. I love that. I just wrote down bringing the human back to legal and I highlighted it. That is wonderful. So now, now take us uh, from your sabbatical to kind of, you know, banana milk, cannabis, you know, through that kind of journey and now all the way back, you know, come back to me, Fredo, the legal industry pulled you back. How'd that happen? Uh, when when did it happen? Because it's fairly recent. I mean, we're talking about something that is maybe a year and three months old at this point. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So look, so when I was, I, you know, halftime, I was doing different things. And the other halftime I started doing, I, you know, still needed to find a way to make a buck here. So I, I was doing a lot of advising for private equity and venture on the space of legal. And then coupled that with investing and advising a number of early stage legal startups. And that became really interesting to me because, you know, legal tech and the iteration that we're in now is definitely the biggest that we've seen. There's more money in the market than there's been. The reason why the money is important is because before when there wasn't money, a company would get to like 10 million bucks in revenue and then Lexus or TR or Kluwer would buy them and then it would die. Like we'd never hear about it ever again, right? But the reason why you need the the external, the private money, you know, me and Liam talked about this in his podcast too, is it gives people like, you have Ironclad now that, you know, like, I mean, the reality is they probably, if they never raised again, they still be great. They're going to do well because they have money. Otherwise, they'd get to a, a logical point and they'd have to be sold. And now it's with DocuSign or, you know, there's whatever the new players are. But like innovation is created with money and someone taking a bet that, hey, I might lose something before I win. And so that was really exciting and interesting. And I just realized like, hey, there's still a lot of important work to be done in this industry. You know, after all of the hoopla around e-discovery and LPO and all the kind of the push and the pull that we used to do, you know, now there are multi-billion dollar industries and law firms are still doing really well and they still own 90 plus percent of the market. So there has to be a better way to do it. And then, you know, I just, through the network that, you know, I was meeting people working on different things. I had a call come in to say, hey, we're, you know, Axiom split into three. One of our businesses were, you know, we've sold the other two or we're about to. Right. Or you have Knowable, right? Knowable. Knowable and, Ax and then Axiom. That was, it was Axiom and then Knowable. We're looking for a new CEO. Would, they be, would you be interested? And, you know, like that was, ex it was an exciting opportunity, right? To me, I'll tell you when I was at Clutch, the firm, like I try, I copied as much as I could off of what Axiom was doing. I mean, they, they were definitely, they weren't in the marathon with us. They were running their own, you know, triathlon, right? They were doing and their own thing. As a result of that, did you feel any, I mean, you, you talked about imposter syndrome earlier in this discussion. I mean, was that your first impulse, right? When you got the call, you're like, massively, right? yeah. massively. Yeah. I was like, how is that possible? And, you know, I had a number of conversations and, once again, you know, you take a look at where the business is, how you take that business and break it down into its component pieces. 
understand what it is and you start realizing, okay, well, this stuff's all really similar to what I've done before, right? It's taking one and turning into something else or taking one and having more people work with you on it. And, you know, I spent some time or quite a bit of time with Mark, which, you know, he's just a very inspirational person. I got a chance to meet Bob Cagle, who's the founder of Benchmark Capital. And, you know, I think the imposter syndrome was at its maximum level when, you know, Bob, who's who's like been with founders from like Instagram and Facebook and Uber and like probably every unicorn you've seen. Um, and he was excited about my candidacy for CEO. And I'm like, wow, that's okay. I, I've never done this before. I don't know. I don't, you know, but it was a very interesting humanizing experience, but it was exciting. Right. And I think the point is, you know, if you can find something you're excited about, your drive, your motivation, your excitement is what will fuel your desire to learn and do the right thing. Yeah. And then if you can find the right, build the right team around you, then that can propagate forever, right? You'll have your moments of weak, like moments of like, oh, I'm tired of this or whatever it is. But if you have the right team around you, they'll pull you back. So now you're good. Let's go. You know, you've described Factor as a 500 person startup. Right now, when you were hired on as a CEO of a factor, it was spun out of Axiom, but it it started out with a certain number of people, a certain number of very talented people, uh, a certain kind of mission, a certain kind of trajectory. How much of that did you kind of parachute into and take on? How much of that was, hey, look, Varun, we want to do this thing. There's a lot of questions we have. We need you to answer a lot of this. I mean, how many people were there when you started? What were the the objectives? I mean, all of these kinds of of things, right? Because sure. as CEO of a spinoff, that's very different than obviously the CEO of a one person company that you start in your you know on your couch or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I think what I always knew was that there is we wanted to respect and value the heritage. That's very important. The quality of people, the types of people we had were wonderful, but we also needed to find our own way. And I think everyone in the business was excited for what it meant to be a factorian. And to a certain extent, and it's not in a negative way, but to not be an axiom to data, right? Because that's a movie everyone's kind of seen and everyone's ready for the next movie. Everyone's right. ready for an independent movie, one that we shape and build ourselves. And kind of what I said is, hey, look, you guys are all here on the ground floor. It's 500. It was it was 420 of us, I think, on the ground floor. We're here now to, to build something that no one's built before in the market, right? And we want to build it in a way that leaves a legacy that, you know, to me, I think the aspiration is, you know, that got me excited is the aspiration is the same way you know, whether it be Cravath or Skadden, these firms have been built and they've become institutions in the legal industry. I think we're ready for that in what I'm going to call a legal company, right? In something that's not a law firm, but a legal company, but has the same kind of, I have a problem that looks like this. I'm going to call Skadden. You know, I have a new M&A deal. I'm going to call Skadden. I have this other massive hairy issue. I'm going to call Cravath. I have this other type of hairy issue. I'm going to call Hector. What is the That's nature our aspiration. of that? Yeah, what is the nature of that um, that type of problem, right? I mean, clearly, yeah. I'm gonna, you know, I've got a major M and A Wachtel, right? I call, you know, whatever. I you know, litigation, yeah. I call Scott, whatever. What is that problem, or the type of problem, nature of problem, where I pick up the phone as the GC of a Fortune, <clears throat> whatever hundred, and I call you? Yeah. 
So my view is actually, I'm going to take a step back, which is I've had a, I've the fortunate ability that since I've, you know, even actually in the last six months, I've probably spoken to more global general counsels here than I did ever in my entire career at Clutch. And I think the reason why is because part of that is just because I think the general counsel is like, I don't need to talk to any discovery vendor about doc review. Like, I mean, not to, not to belittle it anyway. And I don't think I have fully comprehended or understood that till now, right? But I think the other part of it is I do think that the, the market's changing. They're more interested in new and different and change. But what the general counsel is saying to me, every general counsel almost says the same things. A, before the problems looked like this, and I could call a partner at a law firm that I've known for so long, and he could solve it for me. But our businesses are bigger. We operate in more countries than we ever have. We have more people than ever, with more data than ever. And we have to piece together all of these things. So the problems I'm dealing with have a legal component, but that's not it, right? There is a PMO component. There's a data component. There's a tech component. Is this going to sound familiar to you now? Yeah. You know, there is a like scale component, right? Like could Scadden give me a hundred people tomorrow? No, they're not built that way. They're not built to do that, right? And then there's a cost component, right? There is pressure on cost, of course. There's an efficiency component. Are the right people doing the right things? So, so I think the problem that we're running into is, you know, a bank, you know, recently called me and said, hey, like, the ECB, you know, European Commission is saying the way we engage with our vendors has to evolve because of new third-party risk parameters. I need someone to help me understand our current position. I need someone to help me figure out how we create a program to repaper all these relationships with our third-party vendors. And I need someone that can hopefully do it in a way that gives me some institutional knowledge at the end of this, not just a one-off. And, you know, they said, hey, like, and we also probably are going to need some legal expertise on that ECB rule and how that maps. So, like, literally, the GC was like, do you know a law firm that's good at this? Like, can we, you know, do you have an idea? That's far and few in between. But that's what I think is the future is law firm collaboration. I think that's huge, right? And I think my general view, and people are going to probably throw stones at this podcast when I say this, but I think... There are partners at many of these firms that deserve to be paid way more than fifteen hundred dollars to two thousand dollars an hour because you're you're usually you usually need them for fifteen to thirty minutes on an issue that they've studied and worked on for thirty years. Right, that should be worth a lot more, and that's how we change the economics. Let's pay the partners more and let's move the complex work at scale, as we call it, over to firms like us. And then the partner doesn't have to worry about reporting and management and you know, data and, and things that they don't want to think about anyways. Right. What is the value proposition of a factor over, you know, one of the existing big four? Because I think a lot of folks will say, well, yeah. wait a second, you know, it seems like a lot of the things that Varun is describing, I've heard pitches from EY Law and PwC and Deloitte, and they seem to be pitching something similar, but it is different. I mean, how is it different? It's different. Yeah. So look, so I think first of all, I'm glad those guys are in it because that means that we're not, if we were the only ones trying to do this, then I'd be like, shit, we're what, you know, what, what are we missing here? Right. 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 Um, And there's way, you know, 
if we added up the, if we took e-discovery out of it, if we added up all the non-law firm legal services spend across all the businesses, including a lot of the big four, the non-law firm side of their business too, we barely make up, all of us barely make up maybe an AMLA 50 firm, right? So there's a lot of work and a lot of room for all of us to go around. But ultimately, you know, we're not there for a consulting project. We, we do some consulting, a little bit of consulting, a little bit of advisory. We're not there to do all, like, I don't have a tax practice. I don't have an audit practice. I don't have like a e-billing implementation practice. I don't have any discovery practice. I think general counsels never, I've never heard a general counsel say, yeah, I just call one law firm to do everything for us. Right. They go to specialists to do different things. So where we're where we're focused on is, you know, if you have to do like a massive legal spend analysis engagement, I think there are great people out there to do that. Don't call us. If you need to do invoice review, don't call us. If you need to set up a new entity in, in uh, Kazakhstan, don't call us, right? But if you're thinking about divesting a business and how that's going to, the interplay between your vendors, your your customers, your employees, and how you create a plan to do that, this isn't going to be like a, a, a line item on a larger transformation program for us. That is what we do on the legal side of it. Where for a big four, it's going to be like for them, that's like the million dollar line item for a 50, 70 million dollar transformation program. So it just depends on focus. Like there is value in having them do all of it, of course, because there's some kind of knowledge transfer. But for us, this is all we do for a living. We don't want to be all things to all people. You know, Scadden didn't start off by being a multidisciplinary firm. They started off very, you know, to focus on M&A in, you know, for PE, really. That's where they started. And then they, they've evolved and grown to this magnificent institution. Right now, we're focused on complex work at scale. A lot of that rests in how we can help businesses transact better through commercial contracting, through procurement contracting, through capital markets documentation, through legal entity management. And that's what we do. We don't do e-discovery. We don't do document review. You know, so it's about focus. Right. That's, that's how I think about it. So how do law firms regard you? I mean, do, do law firms look at, at Factor and say, thank God you exist. You could take a lot of this stuff that we, you know, is not our core competency, stuff that we don't want to do off our plate. We could kind of jointly bid on X thing. And I'm more likely to win it as a, you know, a partner at an AMLA 100 firm because I'm working with Factor and they know Factor is really good at this other thing, right? Kind of best of both worlds. Imagine that global firm, you know, sitting alongside you when you were at Clutch Group, right? Filming the movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, right? Like, do they look at it and say, wonderful, we could win more business working with Factor. These guys are good, but we're good at our thing. And so yeah. let's let's win. I, yeah, so I think there's three categories of firms. There's firms that are bringing innovation to the table and doing it themselves, right? And, and, and some of them are doing it well, some of them aren't. But like, the fact that they're attempting to and trying and figuring out technology and alternative resource models. And I applaud that. I think that's huge. I think that's important. I mean, now they may realize at some point that's not a core business or a core competency. And, you know, I'll, I'll say, I'll literally on your podcast, if you're listening as a managing partner of a firm, I'll buy it from you. I'll buy that business off of you, right? That's, you know, that's complex work at scale. I think then there's a second tranche, which were, you know, like A&O is a great example. They are actually doing both. They have certain things that they're doing on their own, 
Right. And there are certain things that they're doing with us and, and with other partners. And their their appetite for collaboration is huge. And we're jointly bidding. We're figuring out ways to work together. And there's a number of firms that we're looking at in that same vein. And, and the value proposition being, like, you know, we're doing some great work with Aiken Gump, which you can read about. We've done some case studies on that publicly. How do the partners get to do and keep the most important work, set up an annuity stream with a client? And create that annuity with us. And then we can go together to more clients, say, hey, look at what we're doing here. This is really cool. You know? And then I think the third category of firms is innovation as a press release, right? And I because I think every firm will say, hey, we're doing some sort of innovation, right? But innovation as a press release. And look, I think that'll evolve and change. You know, what we're noticing, weirdly, we've been seeing this as a trend. Every engagement where we have a tremendous amount of positive law firm engagement, one of my uh, colleagues, Ben Feldman, uh, is the one who pointed this. He did some data. He, he runs our kind of law firm collaboration team here. Every team that we're working with, the partner on that is became partner 2016 or later. All of them. Like, I think it's almost like weirdly like a dozen. So we actually have some proof and data points. <laughs> so what that means is, you know, we are now entering, okay, you know, 2016 means in 2008, they probably joined the firm approximately, right? Give or take a couple right. of years. Makes sense. Like that's when I got into this business too, you could say. So now those people are in charge of a decision and they're saying, hey, like I hated doing that crap you made me do in 2009, 2010. So, and I wasn't good at it. And this is what I want to do. And this is how I want to do it. And this is how I'm going to build my practice. And, you know, they want to win work. Because right. usually early, you know, partners that are kind of in the first five years of their career, they have to, it's not easy to win work, at least how fir- many firms are structured. So, you know, it's interesting. So we're excited. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I do think we're, we're at a tipping point. We're really excited. We're open to talking to any firm. Well, any ideas around collaboration, we're, we're really jazzed about that. That is, that is really exciting. You know, it was something you said resonated and I know we're, we're well over time. So I've got one last question. The sure. thing that you said that resonated was, you know, it always occurred to me in law school, I was going through, you know, constitutional law and, you know, of course, how to make bills confusing and contracts and, you know, civil procedure and all of that. And you, you're talking about real heady stuff and, you know, strict scrutiny and multi-factor tests and this, you know, Supreme Court jurisprudence. And then you get to a law firm, especially as a, you know, junior associate, you turn into this like data science intern that's doing an awful job because your job is literally term connector, term connector, term connector within five of term connector. And it just, it never made sense to me. Just like, well, wait a second. There's a total disconnect. It's like, I mean, to your bridge analogy, it's like selecting your civil engineer based on like a jump rope competition. Yeah. Right. Like it has zero impact. Like who cares about how well he or she can yeah. jump rope? Right. So that that yeah. speaks to me. And, and you know, data culling and data searching and data aggregation always struck me as a bizarre, like core task of an associate. And so th- this all this all speaks to me. Varun, you've been super generous with your time. I, I love yeah. I just like love the the kind of sweeping, kind of broad topics that we covered here from stoicism and banana milk to Willy Wonka <laughs> and the golden ticket. This is, I, I, I love that. The last question I have for you is a very forward looking question, very on theme sure. with your 2016 and later partner kind of, kind of thing. Yeah. Right, observation times are changing. Decision makers at top flight law firms are changing 
actors clearly rising to that challenge and, and you know, riding the wave or maybe creating the wave. What's the future of Factor? And what are the next... Uh, I'm not talking about what, what's the next year look like or two years. What's the next 10 years look like, 20 years for Factor? Yeah, look, I think... I mean, as I said earlier, I think our aspiration is largely driven by building a modern legal institution. That's the way I think of it. And, and I don't use the word modern because you use it. Actually, it's in a lot of the work that we're doing that we haven't even rolled out yet. It's my, it's but, my word. It's my word. word. It's no. your word. Yeah, you trademarked <laughs> it, I'm sure, somewhere. There's some legal proceeding out there that I'm going to, you know. But no, I think what we want to do is, I think general counsels have, and managing partners, are being tasked with problems that are bigger, more complicated, and more out of scope than they've ever been for someone who's leading a legal department or function. And what we want to do is say, hey, we can help. We can help you think about it. I'm not saying we can do all of it, you know, but what we can do is we can help assemble the right group of technology, the right group of partners, and then we can do the parts that we know we're good at. And I think over the next 10 to 20 years, you know, what we'd love to see in the market is like, imagine a law firm with just partners, you know, that would be really interesting. It's just partners, right? And they pair and couple with someone like us. We don't want to be a law firm. Uh, we have no interest in being a law firm. We have no interest in practicing law, right? That's not our remit. But there is a lot of work around contracting helping companies do, you know, weirdly, I call it like medium complexity, medium volume, but the, the point being complex work at scale and running that as a service to deliver businesses value and risk and performance-driven legal services to meet the speed that they need. And so that's what we see in the next 10 to 20 years, you know, not just for Factor, I'm hoping that there will be others that emerge that do things similar because there's a big market out there and I think if we all kind of get back to the basics around, hey, what's the problem we're trying to solve and focus more on the simplicity of that problem versus the complexity and then focus on who are the people that can solve it and give them a great experience for work and life, it, you know, it'll be, a, it'll be a fabulous 20 years, 10, 20 years, you know. Amazing. I mean, I, I love yeah. that. And I'm not at all surprised that an engineer is leading that that effort. You know, I think I think it's it's been a long time in, in, in the making in law to get someone with your experience and skill set at the helm of how this all operates. So we will let our listeners know when the clutch group movie is coming out. I think <laughs> you and I will I don't think I don't think I own the rights to it. So you know, um, maybe you maybe you and I should co-write this and call something up. That's right. We'll call Michael yeah, Bay yeah. and and we'll get yeah. it. Get it made. That's Varun, right. thank you That's so right. much for uh, for being so generous with your time. What you're doing is exciting. And I think our listeners are really going to resonate with how you approach this. So thanks, thanks again. Thanks, Appreciate it. Yep. Yes. Wonderful, Varun. We'll talk again soon. Sounds good, man. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onan at casetext.com Tweet at us with the hashtag ModernLawyer and check us out at ModernLawyerPodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, as well as our audio engineer, Brian Becker. See you soon.